I'm Steve Head, and this is Captive Eye. also succeeded in bringing life to the dead? If you, Herr Baron, will do me the honor of visiting my humble abode, I think you will be interested in what I have to show you. After 20 years of secret scientific research and countless failures, I also have created life, as we say, in God's own image. You make man like me? No. Woman friend for you woman friend yes i want friend like me to a new world of gods and monsters <laughs> The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, I must say I'm very excited to talk about this film. I'm psyched. I've seen it many times, haven't gotten tired of it yet, but uh, 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. And uh, I, I'm pleased to say that David Kyler is here to discuss the film. David is a, a former you, professor at uh, Babson College and former artistic director at the Coolidge Corner Theater down the street here in, in, uh, in Brookline. Brookline. And uh, also very psyched to uh, have in on the conversation is uh, J.P. Willette. Uh, J.P., as many of you listeners know, we did a show, uh, I think it's like six, five, six months ago. Uh, JP has a long and distinguished career working on films, and he was the uh, assistant director, second assistant director on second uh, unit, second unit on uh, uh, the Terminator, and uh, many other films. Which brings to mind this question: Perhaps maybe uh, there's a time where we could talk about some of the other films that you worked on. Sure, there's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. <laughs> you so. actually made a horror film. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So uh, we we watched The Bride of Frankenstein a couple of days ago. And uh, David asked me to say a few things before the, uh, the screening. And um, David, you had made the comment that uh, it's not entirely a horror film. It's kind of a comedy. And I, and I didn't immediately, that didn't immediately resonate with me because the film is so heavily marketed as a, uh, as a horror film. But, um, but, I, but I, you know, as we were watching it, I see what you're saying. It is kind of a comedy in a, in a way. I mean, but I'm interested to know why you immediately thought that about the film. Well, two things. Uh, and also, related to that, how would it have been in 1935, how would it have been received from mm -hmm. that standpoint versus the way we look at it now with a most, more postmodern sensibility? Yeah. Uh, for example, a case in point would be the, the great films out now, Get Out. What is it? Uh, and it's a, it's a mixture of both. Or, I was talking earlier, I found, uh, as, a, as a horror film with genuine scares in it, another horror comedy, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The things that are so good about The Bride of Frankenstein are the things which are not horrific. Uh, Ernest Thesinger is in, in the little miniature things that, that, that he's got in the little chest tubes. That's funny. Mm -hmm. And the, certainly the whole bride sequence is funny. So that there is too much playfulness in the film, I'd say, uh, to yeah. make it really qualify. I don't think 
if if one associates a horror film with it generating chills, zero uh, on Bride of Frankenstein. But I think it's much better than its original. Sort of like the way another great master of uh, horror, uh, Wes Craven, uh, had that whole series uh, section in second uh, part two of Scream, where he's in his classroom, which is the best sequel of them all. People talk about Godfather too. I wouldn't be surprised if Bride and Frankenstein is one of the best sequels of them all. Um, you know, David, uh, you, you asked me, um, Steve, why did, why did you pick this film? And uh, so I was talking with Dima, I guess, a, a couple weeks ago. And then I thought, like, you know, we hadn't really discussed any of the classic universal monster films. I mean, and then there's also the assumption that I think our audience knows so much about the film that what else could we add to it? Uh, but, that, but that's a question that film critics face. And somebody always has something to say about it. Well, I you do. Know, it, it continues <laughs> to move forward. That, see, I actually sort of disagree. And it came to me sort of afterwards when, when David, after the, we screened the film and David was mm -hmm. talking about it, it wasn't that scary. Whereas, yes, if it were 1935, it was scary. The idea, uh, you're looking at a person who looks like Elephant Man. And if you, many people know the story of the Elephant Man, mm -hmm. he was hidden away. They hid away hideous-looking people because hideous-looking people were scary. The only place you could see them was going to a freak show. And women screamed so at just, the sight just of Just the them. presence of uh, Whereas we live in, we now live in an age where that we have come to accept the deformities of life as more natural, which they weren't in the, in the day in which this film was made. So mm -hmm. as far as the creature... He definitely was scary. Uh, he murders two people right up front. We take that as nothing today, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas he actually murders two people well, and a know, woman. He, I, I mean, so so that in that way. But I think, I think there is comedy. For us, it's no longer a horror movie in the classic. I want to be scared in the theater. But what I think it is far more than anything else, it's a brilliant sci-fi movie. Well, there's, there's that's that. a good analogy. I love the idea that it's just the presence of Frankenstein that's all that's required to be to be scared. Mm -hmm. And I and I think kids at the time reacted to that. A lot of kids went to go see uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Um, and and I'm I'm reminded of like how uh, Bela Lugosi really chews the scenery in Dracula. Mm -hmm. But in Dracula, him walking down the the, the grand stair, it's just it's his presence. It's not jump scares. You know, it's not quick editing. Well, it's but the see, the, yeah, Dracula is, is a really interesting idea because the concept of Dracula is exactly the same as a woman who goes and marries a guy in prison who's murdered 10 or 12 people. <laughs> he's a mass murderer. He is a serial killer. And he's smooth and he's attractive. He's the Ted Bundy of his time. Well, that can't be said of Frankenstein. No, no. But of <laughs> no, no, but of Dracula. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay, whereas... Hmm. Obviously, Mary Shelley had a whole different idea, which I think they also repeated really well with Bride of Frankenstein, was that in even the most horrifying creatures on, on the planet, there is still humanity and beauty. We shall be friends. I have prayed many times for God to send me a friend. <sighs> It's very lonely here, and it's been a long time since any human being came into this hut. I shall look after you, and you will comfort me. 
Well, this is where it's just uh, because we have the original Frankenstein, where the monster humanity is not the first word the one would associate with the character in the Frank the first Frankenstein movie. But here, it's almost apart from the comic things, which are would have been comic in their own day. Uh, the uh, there's the element of humanity, the whole thing with friend. Mm-hmm. On the one something that comes all from me, friend, friend, bad, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Frankenstein understands these basic concepts. Yes, you know the. Uh, it, what you were just saying, JP, it kind of it made me think about this uh, um, this, this uh, dichotomy and, and the idea that in the prologue of the film, James Whale insisted that Elsa Lanchester appear there first. And um, I think part of the reason relates to what you were saying about there's a humanity in the monster. But the reverse is, is that in a very pretty girl, Whale believed that there was the capability of true evil. Um, right. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what Elsa Lanchester said on uh, Dick Gap. All right. Yeah. She's... So, um, yeah, the prettiest girls can be the most evil. What do you expect? Such an audience needs something stronger than a pretty little love story. So why shouldn't I write of monsters? That was the reverse with Frankenstein. The ugliest guy is, you know, mm-hmm. searching. For, yeah, doesn't have that intention, but he does kill. Well, but, you know, once again, <laughs> you... If you go back to in the original, it was the mind of a murderer, the brain of a murderer put into this creature, hmm. okay, who did find his own humanity, who did find his own ugliness and was horrified by himself. Yes. And and even the mind of that, the, the brain of that murderer had something in it that he could find and, and find loneliness and, and despair and all those other things and want to change. Hmm. Yeah, that dimension in this film... Uh, there's that wonderful scene. Will's direction here is just magnificent. Uh, that scene where he goes to the the river to wash off his face, and he looks at himself, "Ah, this is me." Uh, but the, the way that's done, it's humanity. It's not played for anyway humor. It's played for uh, pathos. Uh, pathos, yes. Whereas in the original uh, movie, uh, the monster kills the girl, not aware of his own strength, and even mm-hmm. though he's been, he's attracted to her beauty and innocence. But he, uh, but he doesn't know his own strength. Here, he could have had an analogy, but it, they softened it. I mean, what would have made the monster a little bit less sympathetic was if he killed the blind man who's reaching out to him to make friends. Well, but remember, he killed the little girl's parents at the yes. beginning of this movie. Yeah. So, so, but even though he didn't think, you know, obviously he didn't think of them as the little girl's parents. I mean, we mm-hmm. know that they're the girl's parents, which makes it much more horrific. But these are two of the people who put him into this, tried to burn him to death. And he's in pain from being burnt. But once again, they, one of the sci-fi fun things for me was the difference between Franken, Dr. Frankenstein cobbled together a creature from spare parts, from actual parts, and then reinfused it with life. Mm-hmm. Whereas the... Dr. Pretorius brings to him a whole new science, which is really sort of scary for 1935, because essentially what he's saying is he's cloning things. Mm-hmm. He's growing them. You know, he's figured how to grow human beings, which ideally, I guess that's cloning, right? You think I'm mad. Perhaps I am. But listen, Henry Frankenstein, while you were digging in your graves, piecing together dead tissues, I, my dear pupil, went for my material to the source of life. I grew my creatures, like cultures. Grew them as nature does, from seed. But still, you did achieve results that I have missed. Now think, 
What a world-astounding collaboration we should be. You and I, together. No. No, no, no. Leave the charnel house and follow the lead of nature. Or of God, if you like your Bible stories. Male and female created he them. It's like saying uh, we can create a human being without the baggage from the past life. Right. Well, which is yeah. also they talk about the brain having been grown as opposed yeah. to, yes, they did, you know, they killed a woman to get the brain, but they somehow, Pretorius added some element of growing the brain. So in some ways we were expecting something slightly different from the creature, from the female creature. Mm. Uh, and we do. I mean, she is definitely, her initial reaction is very different obviously from Frankenstein's birth because she actually is born. She, she wakes up and then she bonds with the first person she sees, which turns imprinting, out yes. she's imprinted by Dr. Yeah, Frankenstein. And, and as, you know, as she moves around the room, you see that she's always moving to, to Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. You, you mentioned that the other day. It's something I didn't notice that, uh, I think, uh, Frankenstein, immediately thinking of himself, thought that the bride would go to him and he would be accepted. Maybe even never, he never even thought that he'd be rejected. Mm. But it's interesting that um, the bride goes to her creator. Right. Whereas the monster, you know, yes, the monster has been sitting on the sidelines, obviously, mm. uh, and, and assumes that this is all being done for him, or has been told. It was obviously Pretorius told the monster that the creature was for him, mm. that the bride was for him. Which makes it a really interesting thing because, once again, we have two brides. You know, uh, you know that, that there is the bride of Frankenstein, which is Dr. Frankenstein's wife or future wife. And then we have the bride of the monster. So that would have been a nice play on uh, words, though, without the Valerie Hobson character has close to zero personality in the film. And, yeah. Uh, but it would have been a, that would have been a neat thing. Because I think the neat thing is Kevin Elsa Lanchester played both Mary Shelley and um, and the bride. Mm -hmm. and, uh, oh yeah, the two brides meeting would have been really yeah that, <laughs> that would have been a scene. <laughs> um, it's it's still hard to accept um, Valerie Hobson being into uh, Colin Clive, like the the attraction isn't there. It's not. It's, it's just, of course, that's not the focal point of. It's not. It's not the focal point of the film. Well, but, but like but you, remember, so, there could be you could write a hundred scenarios. I mean, he is a rich guy with a castle. Okay, good point. Okay, and she could be marrying him because he's a rich guy with a castle. We don't know. Um, yeah. Although in the first film, she does seem to love him. Hmm. And here, yeah, she's, she's definitely relegated to a much lesser role here. Not that she had a big role in the first film. Hmm. And I'm not sure. It's been a long time since I read the book, and I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think she had that big a presence in, even in the novel. You know, I can't help but wonder uh, with the uh, cuts apparently that the production code made the number of people that Frankenstein actually that people know about the cuts uh, before. He, it was, I think, but you, uh, both of you talked the other night yeah. about this was originally a ninety-minute film with fifteen minutes of cuts, yeah. and uh, we and we have no idea what those cuts really were. We can only speculate. Well, no, we do know that six murders were removed. Okay, six mm -hmm. six complete murders were removed from mm -hmm. the film, and and a number of religious references, which. Well, like, well, like to do. Mm. <laughs> so that there were bo both for gore and for sacrilege. There were uh, mm -hmm. quite a few cuts, and fifteen minutes is a lot of a lot yeah. of cutting, especially in a, um, the film is only seventy five minutes long. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I did look into it. I was curious about what uh, what what we don't what we couldn't see today the the footage that's been lost, 
Um, but what I was able to find out was that the the film uh, screened for the uh, it did a, they had a preview screening for it at the Roxy on May 9th, 1935. Mm-hmm. And apparently this was before it had received its um, uh, seal of approval right. from the uh, production code office. And uh, so some things were reshot a couple weeks later, and then the film was cut down. And then on May 9th, it uh, was actually reviewed in Variety, I think. Mm. So oh, I'm sorry, April 9th, a month later. So some people did get to see this other version of the film. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see the, the original screenplay or the last one before production. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to dig deeper. I, I'm sure that there's there must be some comments in some of these uh, uh, old movie magazines. Because yeah, obviously, um, obviously, the film footage is long gone. Yeah, unless there is somebody secret <laughs> secretly hiding it somewhere. Please, if you're out there and you own the full ninety minute version, call someone. <laughs> um, that would be great. But the Universal was very particular about where they sent their prints, and mm-hmm. uh, Bride of Frankenstein, as an example, was very successful. Other theaters wanted to book it mm-hmm. because the theaters that had it were raking in money. Right. And they, they, they just couldn't, some theaters uh, couldn't get the film soon enough, you know. And if well, they did, they started playing it even uh, a day or two before it was actually supposed to open. Um, but it was a matter of not being able to, not having enough prints to service the theaters that wanted it. Right. Yeah, a whole different, whole different distribution idea in those days. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually, actually pretty interesting that, uh, that with a film that's incrementally released like that in different cities, they... Uh, um, you know, would would uh, book it in Detroit and Chicago and different places, and uh, and then report back as to how the you know the box office was was doing. And then it would eventually get to Kansas City, right, and roll it roll it around the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, remember it was an independent filmmaker who changed it. Really, it the first guy who ever did a wide release, huh? Which is Tom, you know, Tom, I, Tom I Laughlin the, uh, for a. Billy Jack. Billy Jack goes to Washington. Independent, yeah. Oh, wow. Or Billy Jack, the original Billy Jack he did before. That. No, no, no. But as far as a wide release, he, um, Billy Jack goes to Washington. He financed himself. He yeah. released himself. Hmm. And he made 500 prints and spread them all over the country, same day, which is the first time anybody had really ever done that. Hmm. And he made all his money back. He, he, knows, Jack goes to he knows it was a terrible film, so he yeah, did that. Yeah. I didn't bother with it. I, I was surprised to find out that uh, The Bride of Frankenstein, I don't know the particular date, but in Boston, it opened at the RKO Keith, yeah. uh, which was yep. called the, um, uh, whatever, it's, it's the Boston Opera House right now. Right. It still exists as a theater. And uh, in its first week, it made $16,000, which is 50% wow. above its yearly average. And we're talking about a 40 cent ticket. Right. So they were digging it. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously it was a good, in those days it was called a horror film and it worked. Yeah. And, you know, we may not think of it as a horror film. They certainly did. And well, also, also, um, uh, Midnight Universal's shows. doing with uh, uh, Get Out. Uh, mm-hmm. They're marketing as a horror film. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, the horror part doesn't really kick into the last half hour. But I got, th- but I did get three chills in the first 45 minutes of the film, even though that was the, more the comic part of the film, and mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting the way, the way the way it's made. Yeah, but then there's that kind of marketing thing, which is a deliberate choice on the part of Universal on, on Get Out to market it as a horror film. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's well, that's why looking back on this, uh, you know, I I can imagine they would have marketed it as a horror film. And in terms of sort of like looking 72 years later, uh, that kind of thing, 
what does one make of Ernest Hessinger's performance in the thing? Mm. I mean, he's clearly got his little thing, uh, whether he would have been seen that way or not. Um, now, Whale was gay, and is there something going on there? I just don't, don't, well, don't know. Um, I've heard that. I had ventured to hope that you and I together, no longer as master and pupil, but as fellow scientists, might probe the mysteries of life and death. Never. No further. And reach a goal undreamed of by science. I can't make any further experiments. I, I've had a terrible lesson. That is sad. Very sad. But you and I have gone too far to stop. Nor can it be stopped so easily. I, I think it was, uh, was it Elsa Lanchester who said that um, she deeply believed that even though he was gay, there was, that's not the sort of thing that he put into his films. I mean, you could read it that way. You know, and people, you know, you can. Yeah, I, I, I'm more inclined paradigm. to do the same thing. But, but he, you know, I think it was Elsa Lanchester who said that this is not the kind of thing that he did. No, it yeah. is the kind of thing that comes in, you sort or of notice actually, it after the fact as opposed to being part of the, any kind of consciousness. But, but actually, you know what? I take that back. It was his longtime partner who said that. Okay. I don't recall his name, but he said that that's oh. not how he operated as a director. Well, but once again, it's for, for you, for the Brit. To bring in a new villain, because if you think of Dr. Frankenstein himself as sort of the the villain of the first film, hmm. we they needed a new villain, He and so they ended up with another doctor. They had to make him uniquely different. And I think making him yeah, he's, old, he's older, unique. effeminate, skinny, you know, hawk-like creature um, was intentional too dramatically mm-hmm. to contrast between the two different doctors you know actually that contrast uh photogenically was something that the cinematographer john mescal intended to do mm-hmm. he um said that his intention with pretorius was to to photograph him from an angle that was with it slightly looking down on him so it, it would appear as though his cranium was slightly deformed right this actually is the opposite of how he photographed uh the monster Right, which was from a, a lower yes. angle, right? They, that was called, designed to give him sort of a, uh, you know, his jaw a sort of. Well, uh, it's also called the, he- the hero pose. A what? The hero pose. The hero. In, mo- in 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 most films, uh, you take the hero of the film. You always shoot below his nose, hmm. and and the beautiful girl. You always shoot slightly down from her eyes down to her nose, so hmm. that you get that contrast in height. And also, the way we look at beauty. Most guys do not want to look up at a tall woman. Yeah. Right? You think you always think of yourself looking slightly down at a woman. And and the same thing for women to men. The, the bigger, the, you know, these big men. And this is the way we have been sort of taught the world. Mm. Well, these things, you know, just, um, and usually, you know, the low angle shot for a guy is also often against a blue sky. Uh, you know, oh. so that's like, that, that, yeah, yeah, to the hero thing. All right. But it, again, on the way that, my thinking is, how menacing is the monster in this film? Because to a certain extent, now this is two years after King Kong, and I was 11 years old when I first saw King Kong. I didn't see it, obviously, when it first came out. But I remember really feeling sorry that the monster was killed at the end of uh, uh, King Kong. And I think that's very much part of the film. Appeared less for poor Fay Ray, and I felt more for hey, this guy, this this big girl doesn't deserve all this. 
there's a little, well, one of the things I like about this, apart from the sympathy for the, the monster, the humanization of the monster, uh, he's the master of his own fate at the end. Hmm. He's the one who decides to pull the plug on the whole thing. Right. And that's sort of, that's much more satisfying than his being with all those you know, sort of awful townspeople doing something to him. He's, he's the master. I mean, it, it, Brian Frankenstein is just a fascinating film. But I can't leave them. I can't. Yes. Go. You live. Go. You stay. We belong dead. It works dramatically because he's doing that. You don't want that response. Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, questionable moral. Well, there, yeah, there is one questionable moral because the title character mm-hmm. um, it comes comes awake, sees the world, sees something she wants, sees something she's horrified by, and then is burned to death. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean she 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 has a very short life. Yeah. You know, she she's sort of like you know the firefly idea, and you know she she never is allowed to really get anywhere. I mean, you know, a, the character itself has very little screen time. But oh, yeah? I don't think people really minded so much because Elsa Lanchester was actually in the film earlier. Well, except see, people, people wouldn't have the, known that. Remember that two two things. One was this was, was surprise, yeah. this was billed as Karloff, not even Boris Karloff. Right. It was just Karloff because it was if it wasn't a horror movie, it would have been Boris Karloff. But if mm. it's a horror movie, it's Karloff. And, and the bride... Was a question mark, so that the audience didn't have warning that Elsa Lanchester, who was pretty much unknown to most people, mm. would be playing both roles. Well, there were a couple of movie magazines that published photos of Elsa Lanchester in uh, the mummy-like uh, getup before she's revealed. Mm-hmm. So they knew she was playing something, right? Perhaps yeah. the, I mean, you know. It well, was, no, uh, but once again, that's inside. actually kind of things I do stuff. recall that the, the uh, movie, uh, one one of the one of the publications did identify her as the monster. So some people did know, right? Just, no, no, I'm sure. I'm sure some did. But once yeah. again, you you think of your public as being those people who were told it was an interest. Somebody said it's a fun yeah. film, yeah. and you go to it. As it, without knowing all those elements. Well, the other mm. thing, it does have a certain kind of classic horror film mode in some ways, even though it, I don't think that necessarily set. Uh, you got the Bride of Frankenstein, you Godzilla. Mm. We go there to see Godzilla, but we don't see him till the last half hour of the film. Um, you get the, you got the same kind of structure. We go, we're going to see the monster clearly because it is Karloff. Did, right. was, he, yeah. was he given that kind of credit in any film before uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Well, see, in the original, in Frankenstein, the monster was the question mark. His name wasn't used in the ads. Okay. And that's why they did the bride with the question mark in this one. Yeah, they seem to be, the movie seems to be able to get get away with promoting the reveal of the bride and and yet having so very little screen time at the end, the audience not being disappointed with that. Well, come on. She's one of the most impressive creatures I've ever seen. I mean, she's stunning. That jerking of the neck straight out of when uh, in in Metropolis when uh, the real Maria becomes a robot Maria and the robot Maria has that same kind of jerky head motion that we have here. But but remember, it's also the motion of a newborn bird. Okay, yeah, that's good. Very much. Yeah. In the way, you know, that sort of cranking of the neck and opening. In fact, 
if you remember, and this also Lanchester explained this later, which was the sounds that she makes mm -hmm. were meant to imitate the royal swans that she saw in England as a girl. Oh, that's interesting. And because mm -hmm. they have the most horrible, horrible sound. But her facial movements were also that bird-like looking mm -hmm. around. You know, it's interesting that like uh, Pretorius was be able to create a creature that's actually uh, uh, beautiful as opposed to uh, Victor Frankenstein's version of a man that was just deformed. Right. Cobbled so in together. a way, I think Frankenstein was was resentful of Pretorius's capabilities to be able to create something that uh, was actually is actually uh, pleasing to look at. Right. I, I think as, as a character, uh, Victor Frankenstein had a... Uh, he he was he was he was kind of a hateful guy, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, more so than here. That I mean, of course, Colin Clive's role here he's usurped by by Thesiger Pretorius. Right. He yeah. is uh, in terms of the way the film plays. Uh, Frankenstein and his wife. Uh, I would probably not want to go out for a drink with them. You know, they're just not. He provides pre Pretorius to me was provided the creepiest moment of the film, having breakfast on top of you know in the uh, yeah. on top of the coffin there. <laughs> I give you the monster. There's just moments, um, and I can't imagine everybody missing that kind of humor or whatever mm -hmm. it was when the film first came out. Mm -hmm. And so much, uh, somebody, uh, something I read recently, um, there's so much humor in this film, and it's, uh, it's, it's clever humor, not, you know, that in some ways, as much as I love Mel Brooks yeah. as Young Frankenstein, uh, they always said it's almost ir it's an irrelevant. Uh, uh, there, there's enough already in Bride of Frankenstein uh, to. <laughs> I, I don't agree, of course, but yeah. that's it's simply what it said. Mm. Young Frankenstein stands on its own perfectly well. Oh yeah, quite interesting. In Young right Frankenstein, on. though, there's more scenes from Bride of Frankenstein than from the original Frankenstein mm. in, that are being uh, uh, played with Parody, in Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. and because it led because the elements of parody are already in the original. Oh, mm -hmm. sure. Or not the original, yeah. but in, in The Ride of Frankenstein. Right. Yeah. Uh, what was it? It's in The Young Frankenstein, Gene Hackman plays the blind guy. Uh, right. And uh, <laughs> I have to admit, I said, man, am I taking this seriously? When uh, you were commenting on the uh, improper, inappropriate use of music in say, Manchester by the Sea, you mm -hmm. know, the classical music. Why am I hearing Ave Maria here? Uh, <laughs> and uh, the same kind of thing. And how do I take that? Uh, I would say that scene with the blind person is, is maybe the weakest in the film. But it's, but, but it's actually the turning point for the monster who, who, who begins to really sort of learn. Right. After. Oh, yeah. And that's in terms of my own emotional response to the film. Um, even though he blows himself up rather than getting blown up uh, at the end, yeah. uh, that I mean, he, he had his, the first words we hear when he's there with the blind man, and you you really do believe you you sense his loneliness and his isolation. So that there's something really empathetic about uh, he wants a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, Karloff does that very well in terms of the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the gestures he has, reaching out to grab the hand, friend, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and of course that seemed resonated for me because I, I'm partially blind and so i have the what would i do in a situation like that with uh if a monster came into the room 
Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are. Uh, 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 uh. Who are you? I think you're a stranger to me. I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me, but I'm blind. Uh, uh. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of subtlety to the Frankenstein character, and the restoration of the film reveals that. The soundtrack, I, I highly recommend seeing the, uh, the restored version of the film. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting, because there is some history in this film that we know. Yeah. And, for instance, that Elsa Lanchester studied the swans to make her voice, hmm. that uh, Karloff was really against the idea of the creature speaking. He would have much preferred sure. to play the role. He thought he could do all of that was there without having to speak. So... It, it's not just a horror movie. These are consummate actors. I mean, these are people who really studied their character, who really thought about what they were presenting to the audience, really worked with the director to make these characters have depth in life. Hmm. And and often that doesn't happen. And, and that's what obviously helps make this a higher caliber movie. No, that's than worse than the, the you know the run of the mill B movie. Um, Elsa Lanchester in her biography said that she um, didn't relate to how little time people actors spent in creating characters hmm. in the seventies uh, compared to you know what they did at that time, really getting into it and spending time on it. It's well, this is why I still think the uh, uh, just as with Get Out, classifying it as a horror film, it's. In terms of what the, what's really going on, films got lots of it's great. The great thing about it is one of the great things I like about some Hollywood films. Mm. It works on its primary level. It's just a loads of fun, but mm. there's a lot of things to make you know, go into making that fun. There's a lot of subtleties. There's a lot of a lot of nuance in the thing. A lot mm. of complex emotions in the film that play themselves out. And uh, you know, a good film is a good film. If there's you know, and yet it still works on a it's, great. Just it was primary so level. so well designed for subtlety and nuance. The, like the sets, the, the 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 walls, they were just designed to be distorted. Well, clearly another, yeah, another one of these films that show the influence of German expressionism. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. And also, yeah. and also, watching. I mean, another fun thing about this was, in many ways, many of those things are better than the than the Frankenstein film from four, four, five, five years earlier. Uh, in that this was the same group of people, the same guys who did the electric effects, the same set designers, mm. the same special effects guy. It's really impressive. All these per people came back, and it's as if they did every. They said, okay, now I can do it better than I did it the first time. And as far as the sets, these sets are not as flat. As mm -hmm. Frankenstein, they're much more as you know, much more surreal, much more expressionist mm -hmm. German expressionist than the first film. Even actually, more so. actually, the the photographer John Mesco had had specifically, you know, said that you know we're going to take this to the next level. I'm going to light Frankenstein's face in um, what what he called other cinema calls like the Rembrandt style. We're not just going to do it with like placing a light down here. We're going to give them like a center light and then we're going to have a couple off to the side to sort of like accentuate the shadows over here. And, right. You know, Rim play with the light. Yeah. You know, they, they, like they really sort of painted the light on the actor's faces to the point where um, they had specific key lights following the actors around the set. Mm -hmm. Like 
for example, he talked about lighting the monster. Lighting the monster was relatively easy. What was complicated was lighting the monster with other people in the scene. So there was a specific uh, color additive to um, the monster's makeup. It gave him sort of a sort of a bluish tone. But in order to maintain that photographically, whenever the monster was in a scene with uh, other people, the other people had to have a greater pinkish tone to their makeup. And then the actors themselves were followed with lights that corresponded to the color tone. Right. So they had pinkish lights following the other actors. And then the blue hopefully staying on, uh, on Karloff. So it became, you know, a, co a complicated choreography, especially like uh, uh, the cinematographer had said, especially if the actors have to move within the set. Right. So one of the things that I noticed while we were watching it the other day is the last seven or eight minutes of the film, when the bride is revealed, it's very choreographed. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's almost like a weird dance. Oh, that's where she's, yeah. She bounces over here, then she moves over there, right. and the lighting follows her. You know, it, it, it seems to play within a certain uh, choreography. Oh, definitely. You know? Well, clearly, you, uh, you were saying that, not you said all the individual crew members, the people who worked on the original, were more invested. Was Universal itself more invested in making this? Because um, uh, Whale, you know, hmm. we associate James Whale, you know, for the most part with, with the Frankenstein movies. But he did do some other really good work before and this. He did, and he didn't want to make this film. Oh, original. Uh, no, no, original. Invisible Man, you know. But he did, you know, uh, like one of the better films, uh, I think it was 1933, he directed the uh, mm -hmm. first version of Showboat. Which is considered better than the later one. I, yeah, I, I still think, consider it I better. think yeah. Universal was always proud whenever they hired James Whale because they'd take out an ad in Variety oh. saying... We're, we've signed James Whale for the next picture. In 1936, they did that in Variety. And they said, James Whale, the director of Bride of Frankenstein, is going to do this film. Well, clearly, you know, full page ads. As director, he probably bought more to this from a standpoint of experience than he did four years earlier with the other, with the original. Mm -hmm. And uh, working with, with crew, working with lighting, working with, with the actors, uh, yeah. he just brought more to it. And it, I think it shows. But yeah. He, yeah, I mm -hmm. mean, he in his day, he was... A Lucas, a Spielberg, a, you know, he was a big Hollywood filmmaker and known for it. When people look at Bride of Frankenstein and they say it's camp, is this, do you, do you think that that's really what that's about, what, what, what he was going for? I think of it as being like more serious than that, you know? I, 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 well, I the humor's there. Particularly well, I, 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 th I think, think once again, camp is something that you look, it's a retro idea. No. It's not current. There's no such, you know, it's very hard to say, I just went to a movie and I think it's camp. The only unless example I can think of unless is Unless it's like, so bad. If you're filming the Batman TV series, then you know that, yes, we're doing camp. Right. I mean, this was not. Right. No, no. Like but that. this, no, these guys were doing a serious film. And they were, once again, I, so. I may have mentioned it, this is an homage to a great female novelist. Mm. And they are trying to do her well by making this film. And I, I think that was definitely an important element in making in, in why they made this film. Was, hmm. you know, we we could just knock off something with Frankenstein wandering around killing people and call it a horror movie. But no, that's not what they did. In fact, that's why it took five years to get the right screenplay. Because the bride was not in the the original sequel screenplay had nothing to do with the bride. It took, it took a number of years before people played with it until they found a real good reason to make a sequel. Mm -hmm. 
And, like, said, and that's that's and that's also why James Well came back. Hmm. You know, he said, "Okay, I will do this script." It, it just occurred to me that perhaps they didn't want to use the version that uh, Shelley came up with first because the monster threatened Frankenstein to make a mate with the with the promise that if you do this, hmm. we will escape to South America and leave you alone and be gone forever. Right. Right. So, if you're going to make sequels, do you want to do that? I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I can't be. Um, you're right about the uh, about the, the, the retro, but the elements of humor were there in the original, and but uh, they weren't there for camp. No, not at all. Right. No, and that would be a retro look at the film. But looking back, when I was saying, what do we look at now versus what people look at at 35? They might have found because of the you're right with the, the very face of the monster would be more terrifying. Mm -hmm. But even in the way the whole scene with the blind man he comes out, um, that could have been done. If you were looking at it from our being terrified, uh, that scene, the, the monster could have, we could have felt more apprehension for the well-being of the uh, of the blind man than we do while watching the film. Yeah, we're a little scared, but it but, could we have been, did, but remember, we we had the scene with him and the shepherdess. Yes, and that one was that scene. Yes, so they didn't need to repeat it. Okay, <laughs> and, and also the purpose of of the blind man was. A whole different purpose. I mean, once again, music soothes the savage, savage breast. Yeah. And that's exactly why that... Ave Maria. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, but that's obviously what that scene was, was that through the music, he found some humanity. Oh, if only Frankenstein knew this. Only Dr. Frankenstein knew that. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have a much nicer monster. Well, that's Things true. Things would go more smoothly. He, he probably could have spent more time being nice to the monster right Bonding with it early on. But <laughs> hey, just go out for a drink. Uh, no, there's. Uh, I think this is a film. I um, even with the people who uh, we talk to about film, they still. Oh, that's a genre film. There's so much more to this film. I'm really glad we had a chance to have this kind of discussion about the film because it is. It is really a great film, independently of whether it's a great horror film. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's just one of the one of Hollywood's best. So I'm glad we got we had a chance to have uh, this discussion about the film. Yeah, me too. Me too. I. I uh... You know, I mean, I, I, I think that like I've seen the film so many times, and yet I learn something, you know, hmm. each time. It, it's just it's 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 actually for a film that's not quickly edited and doesn't have jump scares. It's got a lot of depth. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll watch it again and uh, just be amazed by the sets and uh, you know me, I, I dig the camera moves. Oh, but but I was surprised to learn that uh, the cinematographer himself helped design these sets that, that so that the camera could make. Big sweeping moves. Well, that's which that's there, not there are a few of that's them. That's not unusual, you know? though. In, in so truth, maybe you know. perhaps it's a little indulgent uh, in the uh, in terms of the cinematography. But uh, hey, if you like making big camera moves and well, no, it's funny. I was, out real fast. I was, you know? was I watching the other day? Um, oh, uh, the Great Escape, where yeah. so many of the sets in that were designed so the camera could do things. Hmm. Like all the tunnels are designed for a cameraman, hmm. so obviously to make it work, and and this is true for a good production, is that the designer and the director and the cinematographer do sit down together and map out how to make it work best. Yeah. yeah. So um, did Will know, want to make oh, another sorry. Frankenstein film? Just his last Frankenstein film, because there was Son of Frankenstein. Other um, uh, well, after that, there was. Yeah, well, Universe, I'm, I'm sitting here holding the Universal Collection, which is, so we have Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, 
39, we have Son of Frankenstein. 42, we have Ghost of Frankenstein. And then in 44, we have House of Frankenstein. Okay. Did any of those get directed by Whale? No. Okay. Well, as I was looking, uh, you know, researching information on Bride of Frankenstein, I stumbled across an article about a, uh, a theater owner who was uh, promoting Bride of Frankenstein by taking um, pieces of what they what they called uh, a 24 size poster, right. which is four times the size of a, a 24 piece, which is four times the size of a regular movie poster. Correct. I you just go up like at the end of Bride of Frankenstein. Good. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't help but wonder, like. Uh, uh, of the very few subway-type gargantuan posters that they made for The Bride of Frankenstein, what that particular poster would be worth today, you know? Oh, remember that when you say, and this is also billboard size. Yeah, the, these were posters yeah, so that were billboard. designed to be put up on the sides of buildings. Right. And then, and then they... Well, the, this, is, this is also yeah. why they have the, the they got the production code. Because well, I guess it was in... They're supposed to have the production code, and then I guess in 1934... I, and I can't remember the name of the film, but the, they were putting up the, the big posters. Right. Now, they put one up right across the street from a Catholic monsignor. And it, oh, he was so <laughs> incensed by how sexual and perverse it was that he went back after the code. And that's why the code was truly <laughs> instituted. <laughs> I'd love to see what one of these uh, monster posters for Bride of Frankenstein look like. Mm. So the guy who um, mm. uh, was promoting the film with one of these posters also used what they called snipes. He created these smaller versions of the Bride of Frankenstein poster that you could just like run around and post up really, really right. quickly. Right, leaflet size. Yeah. Back to the film just for a second. I, you know, I think yeah. in many ways we wrapped it a while ago. So we're, uh, but I find it interesting in terms of listening to the evolution of uh, the monster's language. Mm. Uh, it yeah. later became the prototype of the way uh, Indians spoke in Westerns. Uh, hmm. Me, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's sort of that. And the other night, uh, JP was watching a film uh, about a boy with Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant. And on the television set, there are clips from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, the film and, and I'm sure they were, were like funny. They seemed funnier, like me or something bad. Uh, oh, no, no. It said lonesome, lonely bad. bad. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. friend. Good. Yeah, that's it. And which no, which fit which fit about a boy very well. It was yeah. a good. For, for, it wasn't comic. It was it was poignant. Yeah, it fit in with the, the relationship with the characters. Mm. But yeah, but it, it's a question of how do we regard how would the way he talked in the film be regarded in 1935 versus the way uh, it, it can be imitated well, very I, easily? You will have to remember that Boris Karloff had already played a couple of Indians at this point. Oh, had he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I picked up you talk about the the collection here. I went down to the library and uh, I was looking to see if I could get a copy of Bride of Frankenstein, and I, I saw Boris Karloff, and I just said, "Okay, that's got to be in that collection." Well, there are five films you made between the Frankenstein and um, and this one, uh, uh, none of which I'd seen. Hmm. Uh, I think I'd heard a couple of the titles though, but uh, so he was prolific anyway. Yeah, you know, had Karloff gotten his way, we would have been deprived of the line, uh, "We belong dead." <laughs> right, the great line. Thanks for listening, everybody. 
Don't forget to check out DiaboliqueMagazine.com and don't forget to purchase the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine, number 26. It's our Asian cinema issue. And if you have any questions about the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. I'm Steve Head. Until next time, so long, everyone.